Well, this morning we come to Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is the fourth of these lament psalms that we have begun to speak into in these days in our church. And you might ask, why focus on this so much? Well, it's because, uh, really, whether we care for it or not, Jesus promised something in John chapter 16. He said that in this world you will have what? Say it. Tribulations, trouble. You will, in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble that presses us, like, like this. Presses in on us. I, was, I had a picture of a vice, actually. You know, so like a vice that you just, you spin, and it presses in, and presses in, and presses in, and it keeps pressing, and it can, be, it can scar the wood if you press too hard, and it can just put, or, or it can clamp something together, and it's just this pressure from both sides. And this is what David's experiencing. This is the trouble that Jesus speaks of. It squashes us. It hems us in. It, it's, it's causing us to feel oppressed. It pressures us and compresses us. We feel harassed. We feel helpless. We feel afflicted. We feel in distress. And, and we grow very tired of it. And I know that there are many in this room who identify with such things. Um, well, Psalm 6 isn't meant to heap on more thoughts that are discouraging, but it's meant to help us know how to respond victoriously amid such squeezing, because the squeezing happens, and the squeezing sometimes is long. It's squashing. We feel it pressing down on our chest at nighttime sometimes. Well, how do we respond in any sort of faith and victory? In Psalm 6, again, it seems to me that David is being squeezed and squashed by a couple of things. On one side, there's a pressure of the sense of guilt over his own sin. And on the other side, uh, there's a sense of grief over his personal suffering. So his personal suffering and his personal struggle against sin, against God or against others, is pressing in on both sides. And it's hard enough to deal with one of these things, much less two. Perhaps we feel guilty over a sin that is dogging us over and over again. That's hard. Maybe you feel grief over being sinned against. Someone's hurt you. Someone has damaged you. Someone's rejected you. Someone has abused you. Simply, maybe it's living in this fallen world and you're dealing with suffering and sickness, difficulty. That's hard. But when those two things press in together, it's like being in a vice that just keeps tightening and tightening and tightening and the tighter it goes, the more caught you feel. You can't move. You don't know what to do. And it becomes unbearable. We keep struggling with sin, guilt, and any sense of life of victory, and Christ gets squeezed out of us. And we keep struggling with the suffering and grief that squashes the hope out of us. And it's like being in a boxing match with Muhammad Ali. Just driven, driven, bang, 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 till finally the left uppercut and you're out. And then the enemy of our faith comes in and uses our unremitting guilt over our sin and our unrelenting grief over our suffering to tempt us to not just be discouraged, but to actually squeeze God out of our souls. He, he's come to steal our faith. Not just our happiness or our joy, but He's come to strip us of our faith, if that were possible. And so I ask you the question, are, are you there this morning? 
Have you been there recently? We often feel stuck when we're in the vice of difficulties in this life and we don't understand. We, we cry and we just sit in uncertainty and we don't know how to think. We don't know how to process. We don't know how to move forward. And so we just sit there and we cry and sit there and we cry and we go lay down and we cry and we get in the corner and we cry. Well, let's let David speak and help us in this psalm taking a few moments to consider together first the crushing nature of sin and suffering. Now, that's not immense words here. Crushing nature of sin and suffering. This is no, this is no like, hey, we just need to, you know, kind of suck it up, and this is the way it is. It's crushing. There is a crushingness to it the sin that keeps popping up in your life, the sin that you just can't find victory over. And perhaps it's not even a sin. Perhaps it's just a weakness that affects you deeply and you just wish you didn't struggle with it so much or God didn't make you a certain way in the way that you think or process. Either way, you feel guilty and you begin to feel beaten down and and you wonder if you're truly loved by God or if you just simply put up with. And God's patient. I know he's loving, but he surely can't love me. You feel alone, you lack intimacy with God, you feel that nobody cares. You live in a place of needing to succeed, and when you don't, you do a dumpster dive into self-pity or anger. You can hardly stand yourself, much less think that holy God cares for you, and you promise to make amends, you promise to do better next time, and and then you find that you fall once again, You, you fail once again, and you're just tired, and you're beat down, and you're just like at the end of it. How, why is it like this? Why am I so distressed? Why, how, how, how is it that I struggle with the same thing year after year after year and just seem like, have I changed at all? Have you ever felt something like that? Well, beaten down by sin and guilt, David cries out to God like this in the first three verses. He says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. David seems to have done something that he feels has threatened the departure of Yahweh's love and acceptance. He feels distant. He's caused him to fear something that really is utterly horrific when you think about it, that in a place, that in place of a loving, accepting relationship as a child of God with God is only Yahweh's anger, his wrath against you, and his harsh discipline against you. Psalm 6 doesn't tell us what David's sin is here. Whatever it was, David wasn't saying that he didn't deserve to be rebuked. It's not that he was saying he didn't deserve to be disciplined. David understood that God is holy and that he disciplines those whom he loves, but it seems that David is being tempted to think that God would rebuke him in anger or discipline him in his wrath. He was tempted to think that God would turn away from him in disgust, displeasure, hatred, as an outcast, an orphan, rejected and alone. 
Have you ever felt like that? In verse 2, David describes himself as languishing. I, I mean, I think we have an idea of what languishing is. I think we have an idea what extreme difficulty is. Languishing is like this crazy, crazy word. Languishing. I'm languishing. I'm I'm so weak. I'm so frail. I'm so upset. I'm so suffering in the midst of suffering with no seemingly made progress whatsoever. I'm crushed by my sin. And then not just sin, but bodily suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, ongoing suffering that comes from enemies. It, It heaps up the trouble threefold over and over again, enemy from within, enemy from without. And we just feel like we're languishing. It's so bad, he speaks of it this way in verses five through eight. He says, look, for in death, there's no remembrance of you. I feel like I'm gonna die, and in death, there's, there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm, I'm weary with my moaning. Now put yourself in David's place. I, I know it's not gonna be hard for some of you, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. And my eye, and my eye wastes away because of grief. I've been crying oh so much. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Friends, this is no light situational difficulty. David is devastated. David is languishing. David is severely depressed. He is filled with sorrow. He feels like dying. He's weary with moaning. He's flooding his bed with tears, drenching his couch with weeping, his eyes wasting away because of all the tears of grief. And he's so tired from the constancy of the onslaught. His his situation caused him to writhe in discomfort, shaking and trembling. He felt so bad, so guilty, so languishing that his whole being was in panic mode. You talk about a panic attack, David's having a panic attack, languishing, body and soul. Likely saying things or thinking things like we think, what did I do wrong? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? He's utterly fragile, and he's despairing of life. And I know that there's some in this room that are there right today. And I know that there are the rest of us who will be there someday, if we haven't been there already. What's worse than just the shaking that he feels and the the languishing? What's worse is when we feel like God is silent, like he's not there. That doesn't just beat us down. It doesn't just beat us up. It beats us, period, defeats us. Throughout church history, the silence of God has been called the dark night of the soul. It's also been called spiritual depression. Both phrases emphasize the loneliness and despair that we feel when God calls on us to wait on him in silence, when he does not seem to be responding. Israel in Egypt, 
crying out for deliverance for a long time, upwards of 400 years before they're rescued by the Passover. The silence of God. We, we, we generally know that God's there. I think each of us would know that God's there theologically. We believe that he cares on some front, somewhere along the line. We know he's loving. We have a good idea about him being in control, and sovereign king and all. But in the silence, we just don't get it. It seems to be telling us to wait at the least. And Satan uses our anguish over God's silence to tempt us to doubt the shepherding heart of God. His loving, caring heart. David expresses it in one verse, two short sentences, Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul... Not just my body, right? Not just my body, not just sin, whatever. But my, my soul, my soul is greatly vexed. It's greatly troubled. And then he cries out, but you, Lord, how, how long? I mean, how long is this going to keep going on? How many of you have said that this past week? How long? How long, Lord? This disease, this, this feeling, this loneliness, this depression, this, this, this sense of your... Farness, you're, you're being far away. How long are you going to let it go? How long will you be silent? How long will you be unresponsive? How long will you be invisible? How long will you disregard my human frailty? We, we begin to question God's love for us. We begin to question his forness for, for us. He's in spiritual panic mode here because at the precise moment he prays this prayer, he's not experienced the forgiveness or the compassion of God. He does not feel this. He feels sinful. He feels unforgiven. He's suffering, and he feels all alone. No, we not, may not be as honest as David to admit it, but we feel like that a lot but when, we're, when we're struggling. When, when we're not struggling, we tend to kind of forget God. But when we're struggling, where did you go? We wonder why God seems so unresponsive to our prayers. We wonder why God's timing feels so different from our timing. We, we become exhausted, so exhausted from waiting. And you, you and I may very well, just like David, have a decent grasp again on the theological truth that God is holy and he's sovereign and we know he's loving, we know he's good, we know he's forgiving, but amid our sin and our sense of guilt, amid the weariness of our ongoing sufferings, that theological knowledge that we have steadied ourselves on in some way, that theological knowledge sometimes just evaporates. Maybe it's a secret sin that no one knows about, but you... No, and it gnaws at you. We ask God for the victory over it. We repent of it. We promise never to commit that sin again, but it seems to defeat us again and again and again. Or perhaps the physical, emotional, financial, financial, familial hits just keep coming and you can't fathom another shoe dropping. You just walk around waiting for something to land on you. And maybe your response has been one of moments of faith, other times moments of fear or anger. You feel up, you feel down. 
back and forth. You just don't know what to think. And after a while, you begin to wonder if God's really as good as you once believed. And then you begin to wonder if he's going to lose his patience with you because you're questioning him. And you begin to see God as some impatient, harsh, vindictive parent who is just out to make sure we learn our lesson, even if it's the hard way. Take him out to the woodshed. That'll teach him. Instead of knowing our Father as loving, forgiving, patient, perfectly good, gracious, gentle Father. Well, friends, David, like us, has an enemy of his soul. The, the three-pronged enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uses David's guilt over his sin to tempt him to doubt the very steadfast love of Yahweh, his patience, his forgiveness, his goodness, his mercy, and his grace. And we're tempted in the same manner to throw that out, to believe that God is no longer merciful with us. So what are we to do as people who have trusted in Jesus, been made children of God? John 1, 12, all who believed on his name, they gave the right to become children of God. We who are children of God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. How, how, what are we to do when our sin and when our guilt and when our suffering and Satan's temptation all gang up on us and cause us to doubt the kindness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God? Sometimes what we do is we give up on ourselves. Other times, we give up on the people of God. Other times, we give up on God himself. Sometimes we just try harder. It's a self-effort kind of thing. We depend on our good works to, to gain favor with God again somehow, or we go back into the past and we try to make amends, or we go out of our way to try to punish ourselves to somehow feel better. And we feel that if we can just learn the lesson... If, if, if I could just learn whatever lesson it is that he's trying to teach me, then the pressure will get off me. Even the person who has a gloriously rich grasp on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus will succumb to the temptation to somehow gain their own righteous standing with God as they believe God has booted them out onto the street and barred the door to his house. Get out of my house, you child of God. Get out on the street, fend for yourself, and stuff's coming at you. And I'm, I'm the one sending it, and you're going to learn your lesson. Does that, sound, does that sound anything like Yahweh? But that's what we tend to believe in those moments when the pressure's coming, when the pressure's on us, when that clamp is squeezing on our face. So what do we do? What do we do with our sin and guilt? What do we do with our growing bitterness? What do we do with our fear? What do we do with our doubt? What do we do with these things? Well, David shows us next the liberating assurance of mercy. The liberating assurance of mercy. He says in verse 2, Right away, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Now, we've talked about this in weeks past, but, but here it is again. David doesn't just simply talk about it and get frustrated with it. He takes it right to Yahweh. He takes it right to the Lord 
the all-powerful, eternal, almighty God, the God who is powerful enough to forgive our sins because he's powerful enough to raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, Romans 6, 4. Just like David has done before and just like he will do repeatedly through his life, he takes his languishing heart, his troubled heart, and his troubled soul to the Lord over and over and over and over and over and over again. Rather than steering clear of the one that he's wrongly afraid of, David, he thinks that God is angry. He thinks that God is filled with wrath against him, and that's why he's feeling so terrible. He's misunderstanding the, the heart of God here in this moment. And instead of like shrinking back from God, God says, draw near to me. I will draw near to you. You don't draw near to a person that you really think hates you and is going to be vindictive and is going to come against you. It's, there's this, don't be don't be angry with me. I, I know, but I, like, according to your steadfast love, I come to you and I tell you of my sorrow. Rather than choose to believe the loud voices that are telling him of God's anger and wrath against him, about the seeming loss of God's smile on him, the loss of friendship with him, David knew he had only one place to go to ask for grace, to plead for mercy, so he does. And this marks David this kind of thing, sort of sin, sort of suffering. But the thing that marks him above all is a man after God's own heart. He moves towards the God whom he proclaims. But still, Satan is persistent, so he might say to you, okay, maybe a God is powerful enough, but he hates sin and he hates his enemies. So why do you think he's going to love you and give you mercy? Well, recall how this all-powerful, eternal God described himself to Moses back in Exodus 34. He says this, So the Lord descended in power and in glory in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh, same one that David's praying to. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And yeah, sure, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But friends, if you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for. There is no more wrath be had against you. Yahweh is both infinitely powerful enough and infinitely loving enough to forgive, and as a born-again child of God, when you feel like God is rebuking you in red-hot anger, turn to God's Word, remind yourself that God actually is not like you. He's slow to anger, He's abounding in love, and he's faithfully forgiving. His steadfast love is just that. You don't, don't have to go to the Greek dictionary to figure this out. His love is steadfast. It is faithful. It is immovable. Steadfast. His love is not fickle like ours. His love is not dependent on our joy, our ability to be happy. Our joy, in fact, is dependent on his love. Knowing his love. You think Ephesians chapter 3, the prayer that we would know that we would know how deep and wide and long and high the love of Christ is for us. Friends, there is no sin so deep that the love of God can't touch it. There is no sin so deep that Christ's 
grace will not forgive you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's a promise. Guarantee. Yahweh, our God, is forever faithfully forgiving. Yet, yet again, Satan strives to use our grief over our sufferings to tempt us to doubt God's compassion. He forgive me, but he doesn't like me. Not true. Satan, while the world, the flesh, and the devil would all say what Job's wife says, just curse God and die. When you're in the middle of it, There's a voice that comes, this whole Christianity thing. This whole God is loving thing. When the 15th thing has happened in the last three months, what seems like he is just against you. And that's a temptation, isn't it? So what do we do? Do we take matters into our own hands? and actually curse God and die? That does not sound profitable. David models a better option, a godly response. He humbly yet boldly comes before God's throne, and he prays this, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, David feels like God has turned away from him in his struggle, in his wrestling, in his languishing, and he simply asked God to return. Now, has God turned his face away from him? Theologically, no, not at all, but he feels it, and so it really doesn't matter if it's true or not. He feels as though God is like just off wandering around and could not care less about you. And he's calling out to him, turn, return to me, turn back, face me again. Let me see your eyes. I need, I need your presence. I need to know you're with me. I need to know you love me. I need to know you're looking at me. I need my eyes open to see you. He longed for deliverance, that is powerful liberation and gentle rescue. And this is how Yahweh acts. Consider Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11. He says, see the sovereign Yahweh comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Powerful, man, powerful to save, powerful to come, powerful to deliver. And then what does he say next? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. Do we see God like this? As our sovereign shepherd, powerful to deliver, and gentle as a shepherd to come and rescue us, to, to, to give us the victory and the deliverance we long for. It removes our misery and restores our peace. But to cry out boldly like this and to walk in patient hope as we wait for God's deliverance, we have to be convinced of another vital aspect, one that we've already spoken of a little bit about God's character, and that is his unfailing love. That David prays in Psalm 6-4, again he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, 
save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Unfailing love, steadfast love, loyal love, forever love, loving kindness, merciful love. When we're waiting on God, while we may not hear God and while we may not experience his felt presence at any given moment, we can always know that he is always forever faithful. Suffering Jeremiah. And if I'm just going to read a couple of verses from, from Lamentations 3, 19 through 24. They're, they're like the fam- famous verses. But verses 1 through 18, take time to read those. It'll be in the sermon um, follow-up this afternoon. But you take time to read the first 18 verses of Lamentations chapter 3, and you realize this guy who's writing, this guy is in significant torment. And he's just talking about it, significant torment. And out of this significant torment, out of this languishing, out of all this pain, he says this in verse 19. He says to God, remember my affliction, that is my suffering, and my wanderings, I think sin, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. You feel the that, that feeling, right? But this, I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Uh, in my estimation, that summarizes Psalm 6 very well, including the concluding emphasis on the Lord's goodness. Now, how does the Lord show his goodness in our text? That David answers that amid the lies of the enemy, they tell him other, that tell him otherwise. He says this, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for, for, depart from me, for, depart from me, because, in the midst of all his languishing, in the midst of his cry, he's assured of something in particular. It is this, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord, he's heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David has felt the silence of God, even the absence of God, and God responds by honoring David's humble prayer of brokenness with his presence, with a sense of assurance that he is actually with him, that he is with him, that he is for him, that his steadfast love is his, that he is his child, that he is not an orphan. He's his child. He's his son. He's with him, even amid the languishing. No matter how bad it gets, you are always going to be my son. And one day, all over, he hears my weeping. He's not distant. He does not, not care. He cares greatly. He's a compassionate God. He hears my weeping. He's heard my plea. He accepts my prayer. Again, the pain has not gone away. Deliverance has not yet happened. But on account of his faith in the God of steadfast love and mercy, the compassionate shepherd David declares by faith the victory that is his, verse 10. No victory's happened yet, okay? Except that he knows that God is the one who overcomes everything. He says this, all my enemies 
they're going to be ashamed. They'll be greatly troubled. They'll turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I mean, when you're in the middle of suffering, God's deliverance does not seem like it's coming fast, but he promises when it comes, it's going to happen. It's going to boom, it's going to happen. Amid his sorrow, he is liberated. Not liberated from his, the cause of the languishing necessarily, all the varying sorrows, but he, he is liberated in the middle of all that is struggling, that he is struggling with, to lift his eyes and to see God for who he truly is. Not an angry, vengeful God against his children, but a loving, forgiving Father who always accepts his children and cares for his children. He has the eye of the Lord on him, the promise of his presence, the guarantee that he hears his cry, and the promise of his mercy. He is loved, he is accepted, and he will never be let go. And of course, it's the story of the gospel of Jesus that tells us how we see most clearly a demonstration of the steadfast love of the Lord, the deliverance of God, the, the event in all of human history that tells us that the sorrow and grief of sin and suffering that should have been ours, that should have lasted for eternity, doesn't. Because all of God's wrath, the entire cup of God's wrath poured out, not on you, not on me, but on Jesus. Perfect Jesus. He took my sin. He suffered in my place. He died the death I should have. And then God raised him from the dead victorious, having overcome the world, the world of trouble that we all face. And he ascended to the right hand of God where he not only hears our prayers, but he intercedes in unceasingly on our behalf. And he's promised to present us blameless before his presence with great joy on that final day. This is the truth that overcomes the world. This is the truth that gives grace amid languishing. This is the mercy and love of God that usurps and destroys the power of sin and death and Satan and all that causes the languishing we experience. We never have to doubt as children of God, as those born again by the blood of Christ, we never have to doubt the unceasing, steadfast love of the Father. All his wrath has been spent against us. Your suffering, your suffering, friends, my suffering, Steve, our suffering, our depression, our difficulties are not on account of God disdaining us. Just want to teach us a lesson. We don't always know the answer, right? What we do know is that we're always accepted in the beloved because of Christ. Disease will come, disease will go, but the word of the Lord will last forever. Depression will come, depression will go, but the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Your struggle, whatever it is, will come, and one day it will go, 
because the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. So true is this that Paul states clearly to the Corinthian church, he says, brothers and sisters, we are afflicted in every way. Every way! But not crushed. Perplexed. What in the world is going on? We're perplexed, but, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You want to know why suffering is happening? Right there. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, broken or not. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Friends, when you feel crushed on every side, cry out and surrender to your gracious, loving Savior and shepherd of your soul. Not complicated. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's difficult. But we have been given promise after promise after promise, and we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given this word. When we feel crushed on every side, cry out. Cry out and surrender to your gracious, loving Savior and shepherd of your soul. The answers may or may not come. We don't know if we're going to be delivered fully in this life. or Well, we're not going to be. There's going to be a final deliverance on that last day. We don't know if our struggles, if our sorrows are going to end in this life, but they will one day. If they don't end sooner, they will one day because God has overcome the world. So what, what will he do when, when you cry out and surrender to your gracious, loving Savior? What will he do? Well, in mercy, on account of the Father's steadfast love demonstrated on the cross of Christ, he will deliver you. That's a promise. It's a promise. He is going to deliver you. He's going to ultimately heal you. This is not a... This is not a um, a prosperity gospel kind of thing where it's like, you know, you say the right things or you give the right amounts or whatever that God's going to bless you with something. Is not the perfect life and death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ and his promised return, is that not hope enough for us to know that one day we will be delivered in full? All of those who are in Christ will be finally delivered. Yes, sometimes, sometimes we long for these moments. Sometimes, man, we're longing for people to be healed. We're longing for God to step in, that the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God, kind of comes in in power in this moment and heals somebody or delivers somebody. Every time somebody gets saved, what's happening? That's happening. When the Lord gives you victory over sin, that's happening. And they're all marks of that final day when there is full liberation, full deliverance. Again, sometimes also we, like I said, we, when we're praying specifically for healing for a few people. And we want that to happen, and Lord knows we want that to happen. So fasting and praying and depending on God. And yet, we all know that there's it's not hopelessness, it's just the fact is our bodies are going to fail us at one point. So maybe healed in this moment 
but we'll be crying out for deliverance again in the later years. The timing may not be what we desire as far as deliverance. The vice of temporal circumstances continue to press in, but he hears your cries, friends. He feels your sorrow. He places his arms around you as a good shepherd and walks with you until that day of final deliverance that he purchased for you on this cross. And I want you to consider a word that Pam Palzer had sent me uh, just yesterday, but, but I think, if I under, you can come up, Pam, I think it was uh, a week or two ago that she felt the Lord give this to her, and then she was wondering if it, if it was something for today, and I was, I was kind of, I just got a big smile on my face when I started to read it. It's on. Yep, it should be. Oh. Yep, yep. Um, I just felt the heart of the Father speaking this over us. I see your pain, dear one. I feel the deep recesses of it with you, for you are mine. You are my child. What has broken your heart breaks mine as well. Come sit with me and let me grieve and mourn with you. Let go of the false idea that I want you to push through it and move on. I don't want you to push through anything. I want to meet you in your place of brokenness, and I want to mourn with you. Come and let me cry over you, my dearly loved one. Let me hold you. Allow my tears of sorrow to mingle with your own. Look into my eyes See my tenderness of heart for you. Watch as my tears of tender love overflow and soak deep into your heart, touching you in your place of loss. I do not sit separate and aloof from your pain. I feel your pain, and I meet you in your sorrow. Long have I desired to meet you here. Please let me in, dear one. In our pain, apart from the Spirit of God in our pain, we tend to go into isolation. We tend to lean away. But when the Spirit is at work teaching us what we've been sitting in this morning and hearing that kind of echo much of God's Word concerning the Father's heart towards us, um, God is calling us as a gracious shepherd, gracious father, um, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And yes, I know Jesus is the one that said that, but God the Father, God the Son, calling you to come and drink from him. Come and enjoy him. It's good to express your deep hurt to your compassionate shepherd. It's healthy and wise to express your grief and your feelings, your thoughts to God. He already knows what they are, so share with him. Have honest, ongoing conversations with God. Whatever it is in your heart, take it to God's throne because you've been given free and confident access by the blood of Jesus to go and talk to God. Bring your suffering to his throne of compassion just like David does in this psalm and know the joy of being heard of being known, of being delivered and being given a future and a hope. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Go, enjoy, drink. Now, 
just, just, a, just a quick application thing. Take a moment this week and, and write your own psalm of lament to the Lord. It doesn't have to be poetry. Just write it out. Take some time to write out your own song of lament to God. The question is, though, is will you hear him? There's voices coming at you, and the Lord is saying, Yahweh is saying, come to me. There's other voices saying, he doesn't want you to come to him. I was asking, which, which one are you going to listen to? Who are you going to listen to? Will you believe God? Will you cry out to him? Will you surrender to him? Where else, where else are you going to go? He has the words of eternal life. In him is life. In him is eternal joy. Peter would state it this way hundreds of years after David wrote this psalm. He says this in his glorious text, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To, we're talking about the Father here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's kept in heaven for who? For you, loved one, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while— might seem like a long time. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining an outcome, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When, when you feel crushed on every side, cry out and surrender repeatedly to your gracious, loving Savior and shepherd of your soul. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you can take that to the bank every day, every moment of your life.